Hey, this is Chris Bushnell from BizNow. We'll get you that interview in just one moment. But first, I want to tell you about a new BizNow initiative called BizNow Rise. If your company is in the New York area and it has internal diversity and inclusion initiative that's making a big difference, we want to hear from you. For Rise, we're recognizing and sharing initiatives that are making immeasurable progress in DEI within commercial real estate. So if your company's working on recruiting and retaining a diverse talent pool and you've experienced success on this front, share it so we can help others do the same. Submissions are open until November 22nd at rise.biznow.com. That's rise.biznow.com. Welcome to BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. This is a new weekly podcast series from BizNow, the global leader in commercial real estate news and events, where we'll be tackling some of the biggest questions facing the industry and economy at large. On this episode, we're hearing from Chris Schlank, the founder of Savannah, a private equity firm best known for investing in New York City office properties. The company has about 7 million square feet of office space in the city, and as Chris readily admits, Urban office isn't exactly the flavour of the month right now. People aren't coming back to the office as much as landlords would like, and even though companies are back looking for space, the demand in New York is nowhere near enough right now to keep up with the new offices that are getting built. The sluggish return is pretty depressing, Chris says. Right now, his portfolio has an occupancy average of about 28%. But he's got no regrets about focusing on New York City office. None at all. I began by asking him how he got his start in the business. I grew up in New York City. My mom uh, is still alive, but she was a real estate broker. Um, and a resi broker? A residential real estate broker. And, you know, so uh, when I was seven, eight, nine, eating dinner in the kitchen, listening to my mom on the old school telephone, you know, with the cord, uh, listening to her do real estate and do deals and talk to, you know, owners and uh, kind of was bred my bone. Um, from an early age. Um, so uh, I went to UPenn, University of Pennsylvania and I uh, did a major in urban studies and a major in uh, co-major in urban studies in French. Uh, and I came back to New York and, and I just, I love real estate. Um, it's sort of part of me and I love cities. Um, Which borough did you grow up in? I grew up on the Upper West Side. I went to high school on the Upper West Side. And then when I came back from UPenn, I worked at a single room occupancy hotel on the Upper West Side on 86th and Broadway. Um, and it was that we were tasked with putting men and women from the city shelter system into permanent housing. Um, did that for two years from 89 to 91. And then in 91, I realized, A, I was going bald and I thought it was from the stress of, uh, of working with formerly homeless people, but actually it was just hereditary. <laughs> um, and so I decided that I needed a little more background in numbers. I was really good with construction, management, and sort of the stuff on the ground, and I didn't have um, a foundation in numbers. So I uh, applied to and got into the Masters of Real Estate at Columbia, and so that was 1991. And while I was there, I met a guy named Jonathan Leidersdorf, um, and he and I became really good friends, and then we started Savannah in May of 1992. 90s were a grim time, weren't they, for New York? 92 is grim, but if you look back um, historically about when people made a lot of money, it was when, you know, when things were tough or coming out of tough times. You know, 
it's always good to be a contrarian to a certain extent. When people are running for the hills, you should buy real estate. Um, 1992, the banks, we had come through the financial crisis of the late 80s. Um, banks had written off all of their assets, had taken their losses on paper, and so now we're really desiring to get rid of them. Um, and we, you know, Jonathan and I, in 92, started, you know, took advantage of that. With a big A or a little A, I don't know what you'd say, but we took advantage of it. We were buying um, buildings, mostly residential in the early days, you know, East Village, NoHo, uh, Tribeca, West Chelsea, you know, tremendous discounts. Either buying, um, you know, the deed in lieu of foreclosure fee that are the deeds that already been taken back from the banks, or buying, you know, the fee, or buying, you know, the debt and foreclosing. It was a variety of different ways. But you know, at that point, everybody was sort of done with the with the financial crisis and wanted to move on. Um, what was your first purchase? Two two three East Tenth Street, twenty four unit building. I'll never forget. Um, we bought it sort of May 10th, I think. Um, it was a 24-unit building on 10th Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue, closer to 1st Avenue. Half of the building was vacant. We bought the debt from Amalgamated Bank for $225,000. Um, uh, so half the building was vacant. The other half was occupied by primarily drug dealers. And uh, so we bought the building, and we started renovating the vacant units. and you know, either through L&T or through negotiations, bought out or kicked out most of the drug dealers um, and renovated the whole building. And within a year and a half of buying the building, the NOI, that we, the, the building that we bought for $225,000, the NOI was $225,000 within a year. And, you know, in 1992, the East Village was sort of, had been up and coming for a long time, um, never really was, got to where it was supposed to be. Um, but, you know, we were getting good rents. A lot of young people wanted to live there. And it was, you know, it was a great first, uh, first experience. What happened to the building? Do you ever revisit it, drive past it? Drive past it all the time. Actually, I remember we were working with somebody, an architect, and I was asking the young woman who worked there at the architecture firm where she lived. I always like to know where people live. And she said she lived in the East Village. I said, where? She said, East 10th Street. I said, oh, I bought my first building in 1992 on mm -hmm. East 10th Street. I said, what number? I said, I'm not a stalker. She said, 223. <laughs> and I said, that was the first building I ever bought in New York City. And what happened to it? Did you sell it? Um, we ended up um, breaking up with one of our partners, um, a high school buddy, a guy named Jim Giddings. And in, as part of the separation, it was a totally amicable se separation, but we were just kind of going our own ways. We, uh, we gave him that building as part of the separation. So, so it, I, it, I, it's still there and it's <laughs> in its beauty, but uh, we don't own it anymore. So I feel like you're best known for office these days. Is, is that right, or is that just what the headlines focus on? We've spent the most of the past, you know, call it 10 years, doing 95% office repositioning in New York City. Um, so I would say we are best known for office for a good reason, because we are great at turning around office. We've done a lot of residential over the years, obviously in the beginning with Jonathan and then um, you know, as a partnership with, with Nick Beanstock, who I run the business with today, and with all of our, you know, everybody in the, in the office, we've done a bunch, probably a billion dollars worth of residential. Uh, we just completed a 32-story ground-up uh, residential building on 122nd Street, just north of the Columbia campus. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a condo, a beautiful building called Vandewater. Um, but we do primarily spend our time on office. Um, and I think, you know, not only do we spend our time on office, but we spend our time on office in New York City. What drove that shift? 
Doug Levine, who owned Crunch uh, Health... The gym? Yeah, the gym. Okay. <laughs> um, told me in 1994, we bought a building on 13th Street, our second building in Savannah. Um, we bought it in conjunction with, with uh, Doug Levine. It was on 13th Street between 5th and University. And he told me once, he said, Chris, you should know what pond you fish in and fish that pond really well. Um, and over the years, we have done stuff up and down the Northeast Corridor, sort of two hours up, two hours down, and two hours out. Um, but really since 2010, I'd say, um, maybe even before you know, 2007 to eight, we really primarily focused on New York City. We picked New York City as a pond that we fish in, that we fish in well, we think. We've created a team of Savannah, in Savannah of professionals who really have grown up in New York, done lots and lots of business in New York, and so we feel like we're experts in New York. We feel like we get a first call for deals in New York, and I can't say the same to Boston, Chicago. And also Nick and I made a decision early on. You know, we both had young children, and we decided that what we do is very hands-on, or we knew what we do is very hands-on, and we decided that we didn't want to be on planes our whole lives. We wanted to be able to get to an asset, be on an asset, fix an asset every day um, within an hour. Um, and so that's how it's morphed into a New York City strategy. It's an interesting pond right now office New York not exactly that popular I mean do you do you ever have you ever at any point in the last 18 months thought hey I really wish that I hadn't picked that pond no I listen I love New York City I love office I think office is here to stay this our pond that we're fishing in recently has not been the flavor of the month it's quite a, it's been a murky pond uh, that being said if you look historically back for how many years you know I don't know you know 40 50 years there are you know, peaks and valleys. Um, we're obviously in a valley right now. We're in a, and we're going to come out of it. But you know, New York. It was. It's been a tough year and a half. Investors are not that excited about it, but I think they're getting more excited as as time goes by. Office availability is eighteen percent right now in Manhattan. That's extraordinarily high. It is high. Um, you know, and I think that uh, there are certain segments of the office market areas in the market that are obviously more vacant than others. Interestingly enough, Park Avenue is probably one of the, not actually, it's becoming a little stronger now, but had been the weakest segment of the market for, you know, a good 18, 24 months. Um, now you have a lot of repositions, you have 425 almost finished, and you have a lot of buildings that were, you know, 399 Park, um, Boston Properties did a tremendous redo there. So a lot of the buildings on Park Avenue are reinventing themselves and now we're doing leasing. Um, Lever House is going to be completely redone. You know, Sixth Avenue is doing well. Um, interestingly enough, downtown is pretty slow. Um, I Downtown's think, 20% vacancy. Yeah, downtown is slow now. It was hot, but I think with, with COVID, because of the transportation, because you can't come in from Grand Central or from Penn Station and walk to Financial District, it's a little slower. I can tell you across our portfolio, anything that we own near Grand Central or Penn Station, our activity is way, way up and our leases, leasing is way, way up because people want to, you know, so if you commute and you come to New York, you have to commute. So you have to get on a train or you drive. Um, but people that come on a train, they want to be able to get out of, out of Grand Central or Penn Station and walk to work, um, you know, five, six, seven minutes. Anything that we own that's in that parameter is doing really well. Anything we don't is, is suffering. What's your occupancy? Do you know? 
We, we, we track it every week. We're at about 24%. God, that's terrible. Awful. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, some of our buildings are higher, but uh, as a blend, it's 24%, and it's depressing. It really is depressing, and it depresses us. And, and you know, New York is only going to... Retail is going to come back when people get back in the office. We've been doing... Um, putting cafes in a lot of our buildings, 5 Bryant Park, 521 uh, um, Fifth. And, you know, the cafes, we have Breads, we've got uh, Birch Coffee, Bluestone Lane, and they're not doing well because there's no one in the office. And we try to, you know, engage and, and get our lobbies exciting, and they're not that exciting right now. Um, so we need people back in the office. It is depressing. There's no way you had predicted it would be at 24% at this point in the year. I think it was going to get better. I think everybody was predicting that post-Labor Day would be uh, you know, uptick to at least 50%. Obviously, the Delta variant kind of set things back a little. But again, listen, you can't, you, you can't worry and, and, and live life uh, with worry. You know, being fear-based is not going to do anybody any good. What we can do is be you know, excited, and we're doing all new pre-builds all the time. We're you know, changing our design. Yes, we're changing design for COVID. We're also changing design to make, as everybody's talking about, you know, coming back home. You know, I, I love that slogan, come back home. Everybody spent so much time at work, work was home. Then they went home, and then home was home, and home was work, and was confusing. And so we're designing things to make it much more comfortable to come back. And I know a lot of other companies are. Lobbies, a little bit less stark and, and, and white, and just, you know, and gleamy. Um, and pre-built's a little bit more soft. And that's what we're doing. So all we as landlords can do and should do is try to make what we own and what we have appeal to people. So you bought a building just before COVID, I, I, as far as I've read, 1375 Broadway. Would you have bought that if you knew what was happening? I mean, yes, we loved it then. We love it now. We actually used to own it. We bought it in 2010, owned it till 2015 and sold it to Westbrook. And then we bought it back from Westbrook. We loved it because it's a great location. It still is a great location. We loved it because it's a great bricks. It's still great bricks. We loved it because it's got great, great fenestration. It's near Penn Station and Grand Central. It still is. Why we wanted to buy it, buy it back is that it's 93% occupied, and it still is. And there's a big lease that comes due in 2023 that is way below market that we think we can take, you know, we can reset company's probably going to downsize a little bit that's there. They've been there for 25 years. Um, but we think they'll stay and they'll pay. That's the accounting firm, Anshin, yes, right? Anshin yeah, Block. We think they'll stay in a certain portion of the building and, and, and pay market, and then the other space will mark to market. So that's why we like it. We liked it then, we like it now. Um, the great thing about the building is that because it was 93% occupied and still is, with no role, it didn't really get affected by COVID. Right, so the retail got affected by COVID. We have TD Bank, which is fine, but there were a couple smaller retailers that got hurt, uh, which sucks. All of our retailers got hurt, but we still like it. We love it, and I think it's going to be great. And we, you know, we have a couple another year to to figure out the leasing. Uh, we're starting to do a pre-built there, so I like it. It was an unfortunate timing, obviously. Did it perceptually look bad for us? Yeah, but no one knew that COVID was going to come, and we signed the deal before COVID, and we didn't want to renege and lose $30 million deposit. So Right, so back to my original question, would you have still bought it if you knew what was happening? We probably would have. Yes, we would have definitely still bought it. Would we have paid $435 million? I, I can't tell you. It's very hard to talk in, in, in abstract. 
Um, but again, the economics haven't changed much. No one's really buying offices right now. You, are you guys in like looking at deals or anything? Or? You know, it's interesting. We've been, you know, uh, talking to all of our investors. Everybody wants to know exactly what's happening, and there have not been up until about a month ago. There hadn't hadn't been a lot of stuff on the market. The distress never came. Steve Roth was bemoaning the fact that there wasn't distress and he couldn't buy anything, which is actually pretty much true. We didn't see much distress. Um, banks were, you know, because. The coronavirus was a villainless issue. You know, there was no one to blame. You couldn't blame the banks. You couldn't blame anybody. It was everybody was in the same same situation. So, banks gave forbearance, and it was just sort of a much softer ease through the crises. What's happening now is that because we're emerging from the lockdowns and everybody's feeling better, things are coming on the market. Some things are being willful sales. Um, some are for sales, some are bad debt, um, but we are seeing a, there's probably three or four billion dollars worth of New York City office that we're looking at right now. So we feel good about that. Um, some of it's you know situational opportunities that we we're looking at, but so there's a variety of different reasons why stuff is on the market. But there's a bunch of more stuff, more buildings on the market. Now. So you want to own more office, even though you have 24% occupancy. Our, our new underwriting is new. We're underwriting new rents. We're underwriting new Lower downtime. rents, I imagine. Yeah, lower rents. Significantly lower. We're underwriting lower rents. We're underwriting um, longer you know, downtime. We're underwriting higher TIs. Um, we're underwriting, you know, we own 7 million square feet of office in New York City, so we, we, it's pretty transparent. It's transparent. We see what's going on. We see what the, the, the leasing is. We see where the the free rents are and so we're putting that into the sausage machine and spitting out numbers that we can pay and we're still shooting for our high teens but it's just adjusting down in, adjusting. in terms of the yeah, what we can pay okay so but 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 to the end of in the end of the day i still like office i love office you're not going to change the investment strategy anything like that no. because it is interesting like how long will companies go 24 percent occupancy the comp people aren't coming back we don't need this space. We're going to shrink space. I mean, I know it's the same thing that people keep bringing up, but it's real. I mean, it's happening. There are certain companies like PwC announced that they can go their entire Their entire U.S. staff. I yeah. mean, that's thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. But we were just, we used PwC, and I was talking to my CFO, Steve Schulman, and we were talking to the head guys there, and they're saying the young people that work at PwC want to come to work. It's sort of people that have been there five to ten years that feel like they've learned everything they can learn in person and want to go remote. And they have the option to work out of Ohio or out of um, Florida or wherever they want to work out. If they're going to get their pay is going to be adjusted according to the person we spoke to. But that's for tax reasons, for life, uh, cost of living standards. Um, but, but in our mind, if people still need, I mean, you talk about, you know, a bifurcated work week. You know, three hybrid, days in the yeah. office, a hybrid, or three days in the office, two days remote. As long as, in our mind, as long as people need offices for three days a week, they need office space. Hot desking, where you can use any desk that's free, doesn't work here. Three days of, of, of work week mm -hmm. is sufficient to require companies to need office space. Are they going to cut back 15, 20%? Yeah, that's fine. That's, that's not going to bother you? Well, what, what, no, I mean, we'll have to put that into maybe our, our, our we're not really adjusting our vacancy rates. 
Um, when you're underwriting? When we're underwriting. Okay. We're still, you know, 95% stabilized occupancy. I think that you already see the shrinking of some portion of the office market. You're seeing residential office buildings downtown, 160 water, 175 water, for New York Plaza could that J.P. Morgan is in, that could go residential. So a lot of this B, B minus, C plus office is getting taken off the market for residential downtown. And as I said a couple weeks ago, I think that the mid-block B minus office buildings are dinosaurs. And I don't think that that is going to be an option for anybody. If you own those, there's going to have to be an option for another use. So I think there's going to be uh, a lot of people vacating those buildings. Um, and those buildings will be used, be used for something else. I don't think people are going to stay put in a building that has terrible elevators, terrible fenestration, terrible air conditioning. Um, and so that might level out the playing field. Do you think, are you concerned at all about, you know, New York's cool and all that, but the real attraction is that the jobs are here and the, you have to be here to kind of be, it's kind of like where it happens, yeah. right? Well, I can tell you we're friends with a bunch of people that own lots and lots and lots of you know, unregulated apartment buildings in New York City with a lot of unregulated apartments. And during COVID, their, their vacancy spiked 25, 30%. They are 2% vacant now, right? This is where all the young people want to live and this is where they want to work. You hear like good stories like that for New York, like occupancy, 2%, bidding wars for rents, etc. Then you see a story like Kathy Wood taking ARC to Florida. Does that worry you? Listen, there's a lot of companies that have been talking about going to Florida, but I don't think anybody's moving 100%. ARC might be moving 100% of their office down to Florida, but Barry Sternlich didn't move all of Starwood. Starwood is still up here too. JP Morgan isn't moving all of JP Morgan. So they're moving certain portions of their offices that they might've moved anyway, right? It's more tax beneficial down there. It's cheaper to operate down there. So of course, companies, as they look, to cut costs and save money are gonna to look to other places to put back office or portions of their office. I don't think that's gonna mean that New York City is not gonna be the headquarters for all of these companies. And I think that the Starwoods and the JP Morgans, all of those moves were happening before COVID. So, you know, they're spreading out a little bit. People are diversifying a little bit in their geography, but no one is leaving New York. Speaking of headquarters, you know we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of Amazon announcing it was coming to New York, which obviously didn't happen. Mm -hmm. That must have been infuriating to you because didn't you rent all of One Court Square to Amazon? It was infuriating because we had a term sheet to lease the entire well, million square feet of One Court Square, which is a million and a half square foot building, to Amazon. And yes, the anniversary, they actually um, announced November 11th that they were coming to One Court Square as phase one of their HQ2 and that the Animal Basin was going to be site the second phase. They then announced Valentine's Day uh, that they were actually scuttling those plans and um, not going to come to New York. It's unfortunate. It just shows you sort of narrow-minded politicians who are self-serving but selfish uh, making decisions for other people that make no uh, sense whatsoever. So Amazon went from, you know, going to pay us $45 a foot to paying $120 a foot over on the west side. Who, what, what, what good is that? Um, 
So it was, it was a little bit annoying, um, and we jumped through hoops for Amazon, but you know, we're all big boys. Um, we pivoted quickly and leased 450,000 square feet of Court Square to Altice and Centene, the healthcare company. And we're doing you know, a lot of tremendous activity over there now. Um, There's still space, though, to get room, We still right? have space, yes, we do. How, how much? We have about uh, 800,000 square feet of space. That's we did a Target a deal. Yeah, we've got a bunch of space. Listen, I would love to have done a deal with um, Amazon. However, that being, you know, we, when we bought the building, um, we didn't an anticipate. You Amazon, always knew. Yeah. Amazon was never in our, in, in, our, in our thoughts. So when they came, that was great, unexpected. When they left, that was too bad. But and their coming and going was, uh, what, what they left us was part of our business plan, as it was. Do you think there's a, there seems to be quite a um, fractious relationship between development and politics right now? Do you think that's ever going to, do you think a bridge is going to be formed? I think that the real estate industry, you know, via Rebney has always been strong. I think that there needs to be a stronger unity uh, within the real estate community to come together and to really talk to the city government about what we need. Um, you know, we never got any support, any COVID support. We never got any money from the government um, for all of our tenants that are not paying rent. A lot of tenants that in our office buildings got a lot of PPP money, uh, never gave us rent. Did they not pay rent? Yeah, a lot of people didn't pay rent. You'd be surprised, the moral compass that went completely upside down. Um, in how this, long were they not paying rent for? How, have, and how have, many people? I have very large tenants, very large, well-known tenants that are still not paying rent. Care to name names? No. <laughs> okay. Um, but they are retail tenants. They are lots of different types of tenants. Tenants that just decided that when COVID hit, they didn't need their office and they would just move out. Then the L&T uh, courts are, were closed and they're overwhelmed and it's just, it's, it's shocking. Um, it's humbling to see the hubris um, of a lot of people out there, you know, take the money and run. So if you were, I know you can't reveal anything and I know you've got to go soon, I don't want to hold you up too long, but if you were to able, like, give me a little bit of a tease about what headline I might be seeing next, where, in terms of your investments, where do you think you were, where do you think the big announcement from Savannah is going to be next? Um, I don't have any real teasers. Um, we are, you know, is it that you're not going to buy anything for a while? Or? No, we'd, we'd like to. We're, we're looking at a bunch of things all, of, all around New York office, City. Office, New York City, right? Yeah, office, New York City. Some things that need to be recapped, some buildings that are just for sale because maybe it's not tenants leaving, um, variety of different reasons. Um, but I'm dying to buy a great building very soon and to hit the press again. We've been kind of quiet. You have been quiet. Yes, I haven't heard I much. Know, I know, I know. We have to pick our, pick, mm. pick our time. Do you still think it's possible, you know, you talk about that first building you bought back in the 90s, and do you still think there are like deals like that around? I, I get that question a lot. Yeah. You know, I mentor lots of kids coming yeah, out of school. Yeah, do they say, like, is there any chance? Yeah, it? they ask me exactly that. Hey, Chris, you know, you started the company, you know, I, that's something I'd really like to do. How do I do that now? And I say, you know what, unfortunately, times are much different now. The development business, the real estate business in New York is much more complicated than it was when I, in 1982, right? Much, many more, much more competition in many ways more complex capital stacks, a lot more money. I mean, when we were buying buildings or foreclosing on buildings, it was a first mortgage and equity. Now it's 
first mortgage, pref equity, mez, seven layers of mez is much more complex, much more competitive in, in certain realms, and it's tough. So I don't know how do you start. I always tell young people that are starting out in the business, either use raise some friends and family money and do small deals like 223 is 10th Street, but you're probably going to be pushed to Brooklyn and, you know, secondary markets. Uh, or go work for, you know, an investment, you know, go work for a, a Cushman and Wakefield, JLL, um, Newmark, one of the big uh, CBRE, one of the big, you know, brokerage firms where they're very white shoe now. They're very, very institutional. You can learn that way. Um, but it's, it's, it's I, frustrating because people, because people like building things, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's frustrating. Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't see on it's a daily the millennial basis. G- Gen Z yeah. malaise, I it, guess. It, yeah, it, listen, everybody wants to do it, and I don't, I just don't see the opportunities as they existed. The, the real estate business has really become much more transparent and much more sort of a perfect machine mm-hmm. that is hard, it's harder and harder to exploit those sort of one-off deals that are, you know. Like you did with that East that 10th. That did, did with East 10th. So if, you, if someone was able to raise money, get a bit of, you know, scrapped, scrabble together a bit of cash and they could go after a deal, where would you say to go? What would your advice be? Not too far. Um, we've bought a lot of buildings in, uh, in the early years. We bought some office buildings in secondary markets, upstate New York. Um, I thought you didn't like that area. Yeah, it's great now, but not for office. Um, we bought you don't, really you're not one of those hub and spoke everyone's going to move to the suburbs no. and work in the suburbs suburbs is one thing this is sort of secondary yeah okay far away I, I, I'm not a big hub and spoke believer I don't think it's happened I don't think it's going to happen I mean if you look at all the talk about it it really hasn't happened I think that secondary markets are secondary markets for that very reason and there's not that much competition there's not that much liquidity um, so I would say don't go too far afield, um, but what you should do is do so. Buy where you, in areas that you love, you know. I if you think, like to live there, then if, people yeah, probably yeah, like exactly, Yeah, and if you like to live there and you want to work there, then that makes sense. I wouldn't recommend buying somewhere that you don't like or that is too far from where you live. So I think it's just like going to a gym, right? Pick a gym that's close to your home so it makes it easy to go. If you're doing real estate, you're buying, you know, buildings that need a lot of work, do it somewhere where you want to be. That's Chris Schlank, the founder of Savannah. This podcast is produced by me, Miriam Hall. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review and subscribe.